Welcome. It's great to see you all. For those of you who are joining us via live stream, uh, either, I don't know, for whatever reason you're sick, maybe you're new to the Covenant family, you're checking us out, or it's one of those off mornings where maybe you got caught at the railroad track, like I understand a lot of other folks did. For those of you who made it around or just live on the right side or the wrong side of the tracks, depending on how you interpret that, join me in the 23rd Psalm. We're in week five or six of a series, uh, learning how to live with a tranquil heart, even when it seems like the world world might be falling apart. One of my favorite passages is in Philippians 4, and it's a passage that Paul writes to this church, and he describes there a measure of peace that almost doesn't make any sense. He says it's the kind of peace that passes all human understanding and that will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And what we've been studying over the last several weeks, we're into the last three weeks now, is, is, is this, this reality. What Paul describes so eloquently in the New Testament, David actually lived through in the Old. And we see some of that lived experience come out in this poem. We see a piece that where it is, it is possible to be completely satisfied, to live in satisfaction, and not long again your heart for, for anything else. We've, we've seen a peace that can settle our souls and, and make us where we're not afraid anymore, a peace that can refresh us. I imagine I've probably got some folks in front of me right now or watching from home that are tired to the point of exhaustion. The last 18 months have been constant gut punches. You don't feel like you can even take a breath. You're like, what's happening next? And you're thinking, I could use some of that energy. There's a peace available to you and to me that includes that kind of refreshment and energy. And then just a couple of weeks ago, we saw that this is a piece that makes us confident and certain even in the face of death. And today, we're going to learn that that peace can be kept even in the middle of adversity, even in the midst of and in front of adversaries. David goes on and he says, you prepare a table in front of me in the presence of my enemy. I think unless you're maybe younger than the age of, I don't know, three, you probably have people that don't like you, don't you? I know for certain because of the silence that just came from asking that question, you have people you don't like. Yeah. Those are the kinds of things, right? And, and that, that dislike for another person, it escalates sometimes, doesn't it? it? It exists at different levels. Sometimes you just don't get along. Your personalities clash. You, you have to figure out a way to coexist with this other person. And then on the other end of that spectrum, perhaps this person's tried to do you harm. They've had, they've had malevolent intent. Now, let, let's be honest. A lot of and, you know, social media and our culture has, has trained us to think of almost any kind of conflict at that highest level, right? So someone who voted differently than you is either a racist or a Marxist right? And th those are the only options, right? It couldn't be that maybe they just have different ideas or a different opinion. Right? They've got to be evil. Everything is about good versus evil. Everything is about good versus bad. Everything is about an enemy to fight. I don't think that's what David is getting at, but it is real that adversity will follow people who are followers of Jesus. And sometimes that adversity gets embodied, and many times we have to live with that all of our lives. There's a story about a young, uh, an older fellow that lived, he was celebrating his 105th birthday, and, and because he lived in a small town, that was like front page news to this little small town. And so they send this reporter out, a young lady in her early 20s, and she's fascinated by all of the life uh, experience that he's describing for himself. And, and she gets toward the end of the interview, and she said, what is the thing that you're most proud of after living 105 years? And he thought for a second, look, back at her and he said, I, I suppose the thing I can, I'm most proud of is I can honestly tell you that I don't have an enemy in the world. 
And she was amazed by that. And she said, how did you pull that off? And he said, I outlived every last one of them. That's the truth for most of us, right? Unless you live to the ripe old age of 105, you're probably going to live in a world with people who don't like you or people that you don't like. Sometimes that level is going to escalate of adversity, and sometimes it will be, not nearly as often as we try to make it be, you got to get rid of your martyr complex here, but there are martyrs. And sometimes you pay a price because you're a follower of Jesus. Several years ago, there were some college students that gathered at E.C. Glass High School in Lynchburg, Virginia, across the street. They were not on school property. They were on public property on a public sidewalk, and they were gathering to pray and talk to anyone who wanted to hear about Jesus. According to the police officers that responded to a call that was sent out that there's a crowd gathered, they, they said they were orderly, they were respectful, and when they were told they had to leave, they promptly left and went back to their homes. So no harm, no foul, right? Until a judge by the name of Richard Miller, who's incidentally on record for allowing people convicted of grand larceny, possession of cocaine, and assault to serve no jail time, sentenced these students to six months in jail for failure to, to obtain a permit and disorderly conduct. See, sometimes walking with the shepherd means you're going to face some adversity. Russell Vaught discovered this firsthand just about four years ago. He was President Trump's nominee for the Deputy Director of the Office, Man Office of Management and Budget. I don't know about you, but just that title bores me to tears. There shouldn't even be anything remotely scandalous or salacious about this. But during the confirmation process, a senator by the name of Bernie Sanders confronted this man, not because of political views, not because he thought there may be some problem with his ability to execute faithfully the office that he was going to hold in, in service to other people, but because as a follower of Jesus, Vaught had written an article two years earlier in a Christian publication claiming that Jesus is the only way to God. Senator Sanders called that article hateful and proof that this man was unworthy and unfit to hold federal office. Now, folks, just a little refresher course here. There is one way to God, and it is through Jesus. That's actually called being a Christian, okay? That's not hateful. That's right. You know we're not hateful people around here. We have dear friends of ours who are not followers of Jesus. They follow other religions, and we've worked with them on several things. They're our friends here. We don't make our friendship with them contingent on whether they ever believe like us, but that's a very different thing than suggesting that perhaps we're all the same because we believe what our ancestors for 2,000 years have believed, and that is that your sins and mine have separated all of us from the God. God who created us and the only way back to, re to reconciliation is for the penalty for those sins to be absorbed in a substitute. That's why we agree with what Jesus said when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Not because we're trying to be bigots, not because we're trying to be narrow-minded, but because we're trying to follow Jesus. That's not hatred. That's orthodox Christianity. But sometimes in the halls of Congress even, that will cause adversity. And then one year before the Russell Vaught hearings, in my home state of South Carolina, the latch in the buckle of the Bible belt, that's where I come from, at least supposedly, but the South Carolina legislature passed laws that would have punished churches for simply serving refugees through holding them responsible in civil liability. I want you to think about that for a minute. In a state where most of the state legislature proudly calls themselves 
Christian, a law was passed that made it difficult and sometimes impossible for a house of worship to simply do what Jesus and the prophets, mind you, very clearly told us that we're supposed to do. Now, here's the lesson. The lesson is there's no safe haven. It doesn't matter where you go. If you're in a fallen world, you're going to deal with a fallen world, and sometimes you're going to deal with fallen people. And if in that fallen world you speak the commands of Jesus, you represent Jesus, and you serve Jesus, sometimes you're going to have to pay a price for that. In fact, Jesus told his disciples this, about as plain as it could be in Luke chapter 21 and verse 16, he says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. You're going to be betrayed. People are going to take advantage of you. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. There are some circumstances in a fallen world, Jesus said, where if you are on my side, those who oppose me will oppose you. And this morning, we're going to learn that God offers a peace that overcomes even the worst adversity. And when we look at Psalm 23, we realize David's not being naive. He's not acting as though his enemies are not there. He's not acting as though, well, my life just should consist of an absence of diversity. There's no promise here that you're ever going to get to a place in this earthly life where you're never going to have any enemies. Nobody's ever going to oppose you. Nobody's ever going to make your life difficult. It's just going to be day after day in a cabin on the lake and somebody's bringing you hot chocolate every night. We'd all like that. But that's not the kind of life that Jesus has called us to live, and neither was it the kind of life that David lived. And if you're familiar with the story of David's life, you know he had his share of enemies. Goliath, who tried to kill him in battle. Saul, who preceded him on the throne and who became murderously jealous of him. Even later in his life, his own son, Absalom, turned against him. You want to talk about betrayal. But David here tells us in Psalm 23, you know what? Even in those times of peril, I can rely on the provision of God. And so here, here's my prayer today, is that this message gets through to you in such a way that you walk out of here with more confidence than you had when you came in, that God will provide you peace, not by taking away your adversaries, but that he will endow you with an inner tranquility, even as you are nose to nose with your adversaries. That's the promise that we find here. So let's take a look at how David found this peace. Number one, he let the shepherd's sovereignty refresh him. And that's what we've got to do. Let the sovereignty of your shepherd and mine refresh you. He says, you prepare a table. Here's where David starts. He doesn't go, woe is me. He doesn't pine for the days when maybe his adversaries or those adversarial circumstances should be taken away. He starts by saying this, God, you have made me for this moment. And the way I know that is because I confess first and foremost, you made this moment for me. Do you believe that? You're like, well, I really would rather he'd make a different moment than this one. Yeah, I, I get that. But he's prepared it. You David says, you have set in motion all of the things that I need. Prepare means to arrange. It means to ordain. And so in the presence of his enemies, I see this. His first reference is not to the threat of his enemies. It's to the presence and the sovereignty of his God. David realized because he belonged to the shepherd, it didn't matter where he was or how big the threat was around him or how adverse the circumstances may have appeared. He was there because the shepherd had led him there. 
Okay, we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago this track that the shepherd would make through what was called the valley of the shadow of death. That's the reference that we read in verse 4, that really arduous, treacherous trip up to the top of the mountain before winter starts and down to the bottom of the mountain after winter is over. There was one part of that story that I left out that I think is relevant for today. And that's this, before the shepherd would lead his flock into that environment and up that really arduous road, he would take at least two trips on that road all by himself. Did you know that? He would make that trek on his own before he would lead the sheep to make that trek. He would go up, usually right at the end of winter when there's snow still on the top of that mountain in Palestine. And he would make a preliminary trip where he planned to lead his flock. He would look over that area with great care. He would make note of where he thought the best spots would be. And then just before the sheep come up with him, he takes another trip. And he brings along the supplies that his sheep are going to need. He arranges everything where it needs to be so that by the time the sheep are seeing this location, everything's set. Does this sound familiar? You set a table. That's what it's called. He appointed the camps where they'd be located. He selected the places where they would have the best places to eat and sleep. He made sure the vegetation was adequate. In other words, wherever the flock was, the shepherd had already been there. That's the story behind this this analogy. And so David speaks with confidence here and he goes, I am, even as I look and see that I am nose to nose with my adversaries or with adverse circumstances, I can know I'm exactly where my shepherd has led me. I'm exactly where he has ordained that I should be, which means that when I'm staring adversity in the face, I know he has prepared those circumstances. He's made me for the moment and he's made the moment for me. And I think that's the question we have to ask ourselves because that's, if you don't take that first step, this peace is probably never going to indwell your soul. That first step to realize the Lord has sovereignly placed me in the time and the place in which he has desired. We don't always like that, do we? Proverbs 16, 9 puts it this way. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So when you're tempted like I am sometimes to go, okay, I can agree at least, you know, mentally, God created me for this moment and this moment for me, but I, I, heavens to Betsy, I wish he'd make another moment because I do not like the one that I'm in. We've got to remember that the Lord doesn't always give us what we want and, and we've got to thank him for that because oftentimes he's doing something even better. I, I know for me in, in January of 2020, I was looking back at, at probably one of the sweetest, best years that we'd ever had as a church, at least, in, at least since I've been here. I'm sure many of you have been here before me have experienced better and sweeter, but, but since I've been here, it was just a phenomenal year. We saw growth. We saw the church got out of debt by the end of 2018. We were starting to see people come to, come to Jesus in greater numbers. We brought on more staff. Our existing staff started to sync up really well. And, and I really, I, I started thinking to myself, what's 2020 going to hold? And we planned for it. Pastor Dave and I and the rest of the staff planned for what we thought was coming in 2020. But I have to be honest with you. I, I was, I was honest. I, I, you probably were here. Some of you uh, that aren't new, at least when I said in the fall of 2019, it, it probably will not always be this way. Churches go through ebbs and flows. This was a really sweet season. It's probably not always going to be this way. You're like, 
Why is that? And, and maybe some of you even, you, you, your church background includes that maybe there's a lot of conflict there. Maybe there's, who knows what kind of stuff you faced. And maybe you've asked that question before. Why in the world does it seem like when there's trouble, it's at its most visceral point in a church? And my only answer to you is that it, it's because Satan is a master military strategist and he don't bomb baby aspirin factories. He don't waste his time with that. He's going to go where the high value targets are. And so you kind of have to know on occasion, the enemy is at work. How do we be ready for that? How do we respond? Well, it doesn't mean you don't plan. It doesn't mean you don't have wisdom and that there's not prudence. And so we, we wanted to leverage all of this. And so Pastor Dave and I were getting together and then with the rest of the staff and, and we launched in, in January 2020, the can't miss this campaign. We were trying to bring attendance up. That's not the only thing we wanted to do with that. We want to make disciples, but frankly, we can't invest in you if you're not here right? And so we wanted that to be a reality here. And from January 2020 to February 2020, this congregation grew by an additional 22%. And we were like, this is awesome. Let's roll. What are we going to do? We made more plans. Six weeks later, I'm preaching to a completely empty room. That's what the Lord did to me. Now, God did not send COVID-19 merely to teach Joel Rainey a lesson. Number one, he's not that petty. And number two, if he really had, if he, if, if I was really doing such a bad job, he would have just killed me and left a greasy spot where I used to be and replaced me with somebody else. Okay. God has far more in his sovereign plans than you or I could possibly fathom by allowing that pandemic to affect our planet. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not saying that's why it happened, but I am going to tell you, this is what the Lord taught me through this. Sometimes when you follow Jesus, and this is probably especially true when you presume to lead a group of followers of Jesus. But even, even if not, I think the, the most important thing I learned, and maybe with reference to what we see here, you prepared the table. You set it. You made this moment for me. That means that for a follower of Jesus, oftentimes the challenge for you is you have to be willing to give up on what you think you came here to do and wholly and submissively exchange that for what God brought you here to do. Because you don't always see it. I don't always see it. And sometimes those curveballs get thrown and the first thing we've got to remember is you have brought this moment to me. You prepared the table for me. What does that look like in your world? I, I don't know what the answer to all of that. I, I just, I, and I know that wisdom is good and prudence is good. And I know that seeking the best wise counsel is good. Planning is good. But when you've done everything you can, and it seems like adverse circumstances are still going to come, trust in the fact that the Lord is still directing your steps. You prepared the table. I, I don't know how that applies to everybody's circumstances here. But I can tell you, the God whom you serve has for reasons that you will probably never know until you see him put you right where you are. Doesn't mean you can't plan. It, and, it, and also, let me throw this caveat in. It also doesn't mean that you're supposed to be totally passive in those moments. If someone's actively trying to do you harm, you should seek protection from that person. And you should also seek protection on behalf of others. 
And so if there's been an abusive situation, for example, I'm not suggesting for a moment that you just kind of sit back and, and let that happen. You, you need to seek justice. This should be the kind of environment where you can come and we can stand with you as you seek justice. But even if that describes you, I will say that by itself is not enough. Because if everything works the way it's supposed to in that kind of environment, yes, you will get it. Yes, your church family will stand with you. Yes, everyone will do what is right. And yes, you will get justice, but you will not get peace if that's all you do. Seek justice. But do it recognizing the truth of what David has, has said here, and that's where the peace comes from. If you're on the edge and have no peace, recognize that the Lord has brought you to this situation. He controls it. He is looking out for your best interests. And let that refresh you. Let me tell you why you can do that. It's because the shepherd's supply will revive you. You prepare a table before me. Now, that word table... It's used in several places. Most often it's to describe a banquet table for the king. The writer of Exodus employs it to describe the tables used in the tabernacle for worship. And so when you examine all these passages and how they relate to each other, you discover each table had its own unique purpose, especially in the tabernacle. One for the bread of presence, one for the lampstand, and so forth and so on. And when you couple those facts to the, this idea of shepherding, you, you begin to see what David is talking about when he says, you prepare a table before me. Everything we previously talked about where the shepherd would go up on his own and he would check things out and then he would go up again and take up needed supplies and find the best spots and get everything together. There was a slang term that all the shepherds in the ancient world used to describe that. You know what they called it? They called it setting the table. And so when David uses these words, he's actually using the lingo from his old profession. And he's saying, the Lord does that for me. He's not just going to protect me from my enemies. He will provide for me. That is a level of trust that, well, Jesus called it childlike, didn't he? There's a story of this young boy about five years old named Billy. He was in a family reunion and up in the Northeast and it's in March and it's on a lake. And so as you can imagine, things are still pretty cold. The waters are still really chilly. And Billy fell off the dock of the lake and into the water. And when the wind's blowing in March up in the northeast, it's not just cold, but those, sometimes the water even white caps. And so you've got waves on top and you got all kinds of murky stuff getting churned up in the bottom, which means the visibility's really low. Dad, without thought, dives in. He's looking. He can't find him. It's too dark. It's cold. He's not sure what he's going to do. He doesn't know if he's ever going to see his little boy again. Comes up two or three times just long enough to gulp some air and go right back down. And finally, it occurs to him that he needs to look toward the dock. And when he does, there's his little boy holding as tight as he can to one of the posts uh, that was anchoring that dock to the ground. And so they got him up. They did the medical attention, uh, gave him the medical attention he needed. And when it was all over, someone asked him, why were you clinging to that pole? And that little boy said, I don't know how to swim. So the only thing I could do is hang on and wait for daddy. That's all I could do. And sometimes God's going to put us in those kinds of environments where all we can do is hold as tight as we can and, and do what that little boy did, knowing his father would protect him, knowing his father would provide what he needed. Let me tell you, Jesus will never be less faithful than that. He just won't. In fact, he has, a, he has an analogy himself in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? Yeah, who, who of you, if, if his child asks for bread, will give him a stone, give him rocks to eat? Who, who's going to give somebody a snake that asks for you? They ask for something nutritious, you give them something poisonous. 
No, he's appealing to the, the best in, in almost every parent. Like you would never give your child something poisonous. You would never let your child settle for something that's not nutritious. You would never not do what that child needs. And then he basically goes, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. In other words, think about all the stuff that you do and would do. You would kill for your child. You would die for your child. And y'all are jacked up people. I mean, messed up, sinful, rotten to the core, and that's what you'll do for your kids. So I'm going to tell you, how much more will your heavenly father provide what he needs to provide? We can believe that. Jesus will be faithful, but you have to be honest with yourself. You got to be honest about the situation, whatever it is. Does it sometimes seem like that's hard to believe? Sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, we'll take stock of the things that we've suffered or the things that we've been through, and it just doesn't seem like God has set that table very well for us. You ever been there? And those are the moments when we can't count on the present because it just don't feel right, and we can't count on the future because we, we can't see it. We don't know what's coming. The only, thing we, the only place we can go is back. But if you go back far enough, you'll find all the proof you need that he's setting the table right now. You know where you find it? You find it in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. You find it in a God who took on human flesh, who took your personal sins, which should have destroyed you and me and sent us to hell. And he nailed them to a cross. He faced agony at Gethsemane, the horror of Golgotha, and the full wrath of God for our substitute as our substitute. And here's what Paul says about that in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I've got two sons and I love all y'all, but I ain't giving you neither one of them. And if you're a parent and you love your kids, you feel the same way, don't you? We often, yeah, it's our kids we're talking about. I'm not giving my boys to you. I'm not giving my sons or my daughter in exchange for any of you. There is a God at, at, at the same time who loved us to the extent that he gave his own son. As one preacher eloquently put it, if God gave the best, God will give the rest. And that's where you got to go. When, it doesn't, when, the pre, when the future is unclear and we admit that we can't see it and we don't know what's coming and when our present is so murky and cloudy and it just doesn't seem like he's setting the table the way he ought to, the only place to go is back. And the only conclusion you can come to if you're honest about that history is if God gave his only son for you and for me, what on earth would make us think that he would ever give us less than we need right here and right now? And that's what we're called to to have peace with this today. So I want to I raise your awareness this morning of the table that God has set for you. Let his sovereignty give you peace. Let his supply revive you. And then finally, let, let the, the safety that comes from that reality, let it relieve you. Let's go back to verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's mind-blowing. You ordain the steps of my life with the provision I personally need, and you do it conspicuously in front of the things and the people and the circumstances that antagonize me. See, all that work that the shepherd does 
He doesn't kill off all the wolves and the coyotes. I mean, he doesn't do that. The enemies are still there. They're still there. God has never promised any of us a life that is absent from adversity or absent from adversaries. We're going to have enemies. We're going to have tough situations that threaten and challenge us. Here's what he has promised us, that if we follow him, it won't matter where our enemies are because he's with us. Anybody tempted to focus on too much adversity? Or do you know people that way? That's all they can see. It's me against the world. It's just, yeah. Now, there are times, right? There are times. In the early church, one of the, one of the men whose shoulders we stand on all these years later was a man named Athanasius. And he uttered a Latin phrase that I, I don't have in my notes and I can't recite in Latin for, by heart. But translated, it means this, Athanasius against the world. And that was one of those moments where it was legit, Okay. Uh, but, I mean, I don't want to pop your balloon. You know, y'all know I love you, right? But most of the time when you think it's me against the world, it's just you. Okay? It's really not that dire. There are moments. There are moments. But, but they come with rare exception. I have personally never had an Athanasius moment. And I'm kind of thankful for that. But sometimes, but there has been adversity in my life, as I'm sure there's been in your life. And so you can do a couple of different things. You can focus on that. You see the world as though it's always against you, prone to obsess over all the bad stuff that's out there and how dark everything is and how horrible it is and where's the next enemy going to strike. And so I suspect that, that some of y'all, you, you're wondering, hey, why does nobody like or comment on my social media pages anymore? It's because they muted you because they got tired of looking at that. Put some cats up or something, okay? I mean, you just could, right? It's just, woe is me, and this is horrible, and it's one outrage after another, and one heartache after another, and how horrible everything is, and then there's just nothing. Listen, you, nobody ever found peace that way. Nobody. Peace never once came from obsessing. I don't know of anybody who ever looked at their life that way and couldn't get off of it, and they found peace. But when you come to the conclusion, you know what? Whatever's happening around me, God's the first thing I see because God's providing everything I need. He is controlling my destiny and my direction in life with all of the dangers we perceive. And by the way, so many more that we don't know about. You may be thinking right now, wait a minute. Now, Pastor, you... Are you, I may be one of those people that obsesses, but it's pretty bad out there. Pretty bad. Are you, are you seriously going to tell me that it's not as bad as I think it is? No, I'm going to tell you it might be worse. Happy Sunday. There's all that crap you don't know about, right? I lived for 11 years in Maryland right next door to a guy who was a Defense Department contractor. His specialty was chemical and biological. I literally had one of those fence meetings one day. I'm leaning on my side of the fence. He's leaning on his, and he's talking about his former work. And part of that, of course, included alert status and just monitoring what's going on globally, all the national security threats around the world, particularly around chemical and biological. And I looked at him sort of half joking, and I said, well, how afraid should I be? And he just went, how afraid would you like to be? There's all kinds of stuff you don't know. 
So here's the Are you going to go home and just add that to your list of obsessions? Or are you going to remember how God has revealed himself in Scripture to you? I mean, you can induce more fear, or you can recognize every bit of this is under his complete control. Everything, just as sure as he is sovereign over every blade of grass on your front lawn that got killed by that heavy frost this week, God is a sovereign God. He controls it all, and he's good, and he loves you, and he proved it when he sent his son for you. So you can either rest in that, or you can obsess about all the stuff you know, and then add obsession over things you don't know. The choice is yours. But if you want peace, You've got to put your trust in this God who has revealed himself to you in this way. There's a story about a visitor to a Portuguese monastery. It was perched on a 3,000-foot cliff, and the only way to get up there was this terrifying ride in a swaying basket, which is another way of saying this old boy would never visit that monastery. I didn't used to be afraid of heights, but I got older, I got fatter, my center of gravity has shifted, and that's all different now, okay? So I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not. But one American tourist decided he'd give it a shot, and, and he got really nervous about halfway up, and he noticed a part of this rope had frayed. And so he asked a monk riding with him, how often do you all change these ropes? Now, I've hung out at, at, on a limited capacity with monks. You may think they're always serious, always praying, always chanting, but I'm telling you, those dudes got a really good sense of humor. And when this really nervous tourist said, how often do you change the rope, this monk just smiled, and he said, whenever they break. And they just kept going, right? So, so where's your trust? Because I imagine there's probably some people that you feel like your rope is fraying. You feel like there's a break coming. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it has to do with your employment. Maybe you're dealing with some other diversity and you feel as though you are going to fall. I want you to listen to these words from the 37th Psalm. They so embolden and back up everything we've been reading the last few weeks. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the, the Lord upholds his hand. Now, look back with that passage in mind at the picture given to us in verse 5 of Psalm 23. The sheep are eating, the sheep are sleeping, the sheep are at peace, surrounded by all manner of threat and diversity. I love what Dr. Esau Macaulay says about this, New Testament professor at Wheaton. He still sets a table in the presence of so many enemies. They mad, but we eat them. That's your reality. That's your reality. And you come to realize Safety's not in that adversity being taken away or the threat being taken away. Listen, as long as you live on this earth, which is under the curse of the fall, and it will be until Jesus consummates history and reverses it all one day, right now we live in a fallen, broken world. As long as you live in that world, and, and frankly, as long, I hope this don't make you mad, me too, same, true, same is true for me, as long as you keep breathing in that world and adding your own depravity to that brokenness, there's always going to be something wrong. Always. Safety is not in the absence of adversity. Peace is found in the presence of the shepherd, wherever he is, even in the middle of peril. 
I, I pray you can let that, that safety that he promises relieve you this morning. Let it relieve you. My great-grandmother was Native American, full-blooded Cherokee Indian. And so I found this story I'm about to tell you interesting. I, uh, I can't tell you that I know for a fact that it's historically accurate. I did find it on Google, so 50-50. But it, it's a story about a rite of passage. It's made its way. There are some historical references to it. I don't know exactly how much of this, but it's about a rite of passage into adulthood for a Cherokee brave. One of the last things that will happen before this young boy is declared to be a man is he'll be taken out into the wilderness, he'll be blindfolded, he'll be placed on a stump or on a log, and then he'll be left there overnight. And he has to spend all night out there not moving off that log or stump, not removing the blindfold until the morning sun when he can feel the heat and the light on that blind, but then he can take it off and the test is over. He cannot cry out for help from anyone. Now, there's probably some big old dudes in here right now that are thinking, yeah, that's not, that's not so bad. Really? Blindfolded, can't move, can't. You hear, you, you feel some wind and you wonder, is there something coming after it? You, you hear something rustling around. Is that leaves blowing in the wind or is that some predator that's like right there and I can't see it? Yeah, you're a bigger sissy than you think you are. Okay? And, and listen, don't feel bad about that. Don't, don't, don't feel bad. I will admit to you right now, this building is way too new to be as creepy as it is in the dark. Okay? When I've had to leave this building and I'm the last one here and it's 9.30, sometimes 10 o'clock at night, I've had some moments like, oh, like it's, we've all been there, right? It's dark. You can't see. You wonder what's coming next all night long. Your mind will play tricks on you, but you got to sit still. Never remove the blindfold. But here's what happens when the sun starts coming up. It appears he feels the heat, he feels the light, he pulls his blindfold off, and then he looks around behind him, and he sees his father standing, bow drawn back, back and forth, all night long. There wasn't nothing going to happen to that little boy. And some of you may wonder, well, I can't see. I, I don't know. I, I, listen, here's the truth. And God knows I have no answers for some of you. Listen, I know there are God-awful things that happen to people in this world. I, the last thing I want you to understand from this message is, hey, you just need to get over that. He may listen, we're... We're here to cry with you. We're here to pray with you. We're here to minister to you. We're here to, I, I just want you to know this. You're never alone. You are never, ever alone. And so adversity, if adversity of any kind has stolen your peace, I want you to remember today what Jesus did to bring you peace with God. And on that basis, I want you to remember and know even when you can't see it 
that he still sets the table for you. Rest in that. Let that give you tranquility, no matter what happens around you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for a promise that is almost too profound for a human being to be able to proclaim without sounding trite. And Lord, I don't want anybody hearing that today. Lord, I know people face awful things in this world. But Father, I know through passages like this, not that you always want us to be passive about injustices or evils committed against us, but Lord, you, you do want us not just to have justice, but to have peace. And that the path to peace is, is trust in you. And so, Father, I pray for the folks that are watching right now who are living through circumstances that only you know. I have no idea who I'm talking to at this moment, but I know this. I know that you love them. I know that you prove that love for them, for me, for everybody in this room, for everyone in the world two millennia ago. Lord, may they learn to ground trust in you. Whatever the struggle, in order for them to get there, Father, may they find it because that's where even nose to nose with adversity, they can live at peace. And God, how we need a population of people, especially those who belong to you and are called by your name to be able to live in peace. Help them to do it, Lord. Help them to do it. May your spirit move and convict hearts in these next few moments. And may we leave more confident and more secure than we were when we walked in. Not because our circumstances have changed, but because of your presence. God, you never leave us. You never forsake us. Ground us in that truth for the moment, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.